You are listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, welcome back. As of 2016, release of statistics from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the BJS, they said nearly half of all local police departments have fewer than 10 officers. Three in four of the departments, or 75%, have no more than two dozen officers. And nine in 10 employ fewer than 50 sworn officers. Well, policing is tough, but maybe even tougher when you consider all the ground that an officer must cover in these smaller departments. If you're a member of one of these agencies, you know all too well what I'm talking about. Well, today, Kathleen Diaz writes features and news analysis on topics of concern to law enforcement professionals serving in rural and remote locations. She uses her background in writing, teaching, and marketing to advocate for professional levels of training and equipment for rural officers, open channels of communication for isolated departments, and to dispel myths about rural policing. In her column, Kathleen explores topics relevant to law enforcement professionals in small communities and rural and remote locations. The challenges facing rural officers in these 21st century increase with each news cycle. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Kathleen Diaz. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, you've written some really, truly insightful articles for Police One, including a primer on some differences between rural versus urban, on rural response to mental health issues, on obstacles sweeping reform efforts affecting rural agencies, and tracking officers shot broken down by population areas. So that one's especially intriguing. Tell us what you found there. This is a project I started um, actually back in 2016, but I was using someone else's data and uh, they eventually abandoned the project. So that left, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and the Google wow. link disappeared. So um, I sat there looking at it and said, well, I guess I'll have to do it myself. And so I've started out for a couple of years now. I've got, got two full years of data. I'm working on the third one. Um, and what I do is I track the number of officers shot across the nation. And uh, I keep a spreadsheet that breaks it down by population. Um, there really isn't a particular standard for what constitutes a rural area. So I just seriously made one up and I break it down by pop. I know it's silly, but it's, it's what there is. Um, so I break it down by places with populations less than 30,000. And then again, by places with less than 11,000. And some of those go down to places with fewer than 100 people. Um, they're literally not on the map. They're just what they call a census designated place. Um, and what I have been finding consistently, although you know three years is, three years is still anecdote, and I understand that. I want to get it to the place where it's concrete data. Um, I'm finding that really pretty consistently, the numbers of officers shot in the places that I write about are averaging between 20 and 30% of the total every year, even though the numbers of agencies out there um, is more than 20%, but the number of officers that represents of the population of law enforcement throughout the nation, um, probably between 14 and 20%. Um, and so one of the things that I'm hoping is that somebody bigger than me someday, who's an actual research scientist, will take this data and say, 
what is it we're doing here in the smaller areas mm. um, where I'll talk to officers who are still working in places where they're not issued vests, um, where they are not training with their firearms and where the consensus is um, that stuff like this that happens is really, really rare. Well, if you look at it as that individual officer's odds of getting involved in something really ugly, it may well be. But when you look at it as a national poll, they are a significant proportion of the officers who are getting hurt and the officers who are getting killed. And so far that has held steady. It is even as of today's numbers for 2021. Do you, do you find the numbers consistent with the national law enforcement uh, memorial uh, numbers that officers in rural areas are uh, more likely to be shot uh, or killed during uh, traffic stops or, or other encounters um, out in, in these rural areas? Traffic stops and domestics, just like cops in urban areas, because people are people no matter where they live. Um, if you read the news that I do, because I go actually looking for it, uh, you get traffic stops and domestics even in national parks mm. uh, because people from the cities go on vacation in rural and remote places and whatever they would do in the city, they're going to do in the country. If they get drunk, they're going to get drunk. If they beat their wife and kids, they're going to do that there. If they have an attitude with cops, they're going to have an attitude with uh, that law enforcement park ranger. Do you see the numbers affected by, um, personally, I've done uh, consulting projects in the Northwest, and I found in, in some areas you have a deputy covering you know, 500 or more acres, one deputy. So the response time for backup can be huge. Um, acres or miles? Oh, acres, excuse me. <laughs> Did I say miles? Acres. No, you said acres. I would say miles. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you might be right. Might be. Yeah, I think you're right. Miles. Yeah. Um, I, especially in the West where the, the geography is immense. Yeah. Um, you can easily have, say, say a county sheriff in California. Um, you could easily have two deputies on covering several thousand square miles. Sure. Their backup would be, if there is any, it'd be a game warden for a service law enforcement officer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, backup could be 20 minutes out on a good day, it could be several hours out very, very easily. Um, there was a deputy sheriff who was killed up in Modoc County in 2016. Um, the nearest large trauma hospital where they actually took um, the suspect when it was all over was down in Reading. So you look at a map, we have hundreds of miles in there and there were multiple agencies, state and federal and local, some of them that ran code three for hundreds of miles to back that up. Yeah, this was in Washington State, and um, mm -hmm. just like you say, that their their backup comes from maybe the the nearest um, campus um, security or police um, private security. You even have um, uh, people who live in the areas. I mean, usually in the remote areas, Absolutely. people um, you know uh, they they have their constitutional Second Amendment in full Indeed. force, so they are a great backup. I would imagine. Um, they can be if your relationship with the community is good, and very often it has to be. Um, I've also talked to trainers in rural areas who said, um, you know, you need to take the stop the bleed classes out into the public because in an area that's remote where distances are huge, it is as likely that the first person who's going to come upon an officer in need of medical assistance is going to be someone driving by in a truck Mm -hmm. or the rancher whose property abuts the road or, you know, something like that. It's right. 
So of all the topics you've covered, and you have a lot of great articles out there, I've, I've looked at uh, several of them. What do you see as the biggest issue today facing uh, agencies uh, out in remote areas and, and rural officers? If I had to pick one single issue, um, I, I would say inertia. And that is a resistance to change, mm -hmm. um, both by the administration and the public in an area. Um, there, there's, you, you'll hear over and over, and I do all the time, um, that doesn't happen here. And we've always done it that way. <laughs> and that is a huge obstacle for these officers. Um, whether you're looking at ongoing training or adequate staffing levels, adequate levels of equipment um, or impending reform issues. Yeah, I mean, the we've always done it this way uh, mentality happens everywhere. So you're not alone there. Um, it seems like though, when we talk about um, the latest issues in policing, we talk about things like use of force and de-escalation. And I would imagine by the sheer self-preservation uh, that you need to have really good communication skills and de-escalation skills if you're an officer working in these areas. You really do. And you hear that all the time. Um, if you talk to officers who live in the middle of nowhere, it's like, I'd rather talk them into the cuffs than fight them into the cuffs. Sure. Um, I, there was an officer that we knew um, in far Northern California had retired from LAPD and come to work as a retiree part-time for one of the really small agencies up in far Northern California. So I had to learn, relearn everything I thought I knew. I mean, he started policing during the Watts riots and he just said there was nothing I would not get, it, get into, never hesitated because he knew there could be literally dozens of officers there within minutes, if not less. And here he's going out by himself to do, you know, evictions, um, all, all kinds of cool stuff like that. And uh, he learned a lot of diplomacy very quickly. Well, I'll bet you're, you're absolutely right there. In an in a urban department, your backup might be minutes away. And here we're talking, you know, dozens and hundreds of miles away. So absolutely. Yeah. So um, have you noticed a difference in the attitudes in general from the communities surrounding? We, we just talked about it a little bit that you might have uh, people in the community that are quick to um, the assistance of officers out there, might have a good network of checking in and, and sort of gaining the pulse in, in the community from some uh, you know, residents that are helpful to the agencies. What about electeds and uh, what we might see as, um, as, as maybe contrary to the law enforcement issues in, in bigger cities? That one can be a hard one. Um, community policing isn't considered a, a separate issue in a <clears throat> rural place um, because very often the officers will live in the community. A lot of times they grew up in the community or they chose to move there on purpose or it's simply too far away from anywhere to reasonably commute. You know, you, you can't, you have to commit when you're that far to get there or there's mountain passes between you and the nearest town, things like that. So yeah, your kids are going to the same schools as all the people you've arrested recently. Um, that's going to change the way you talk to them when you know that um, you're going to be standing in line with them at the grocery store. Um, or it, with everyone from, you know, the most recent arrestees kid to the judge's kid, 
you know, they're all going there because there's only one school that does change the way um, you handle things. Um, you know, their families, um, when a bad guy runs, who's he go home to? He goes home to mom or he goes home to grandma or he goes home to the girlfriend every time. And you know them. And if you have kept an open channel of communication with them, um, you may get a phone call from them saying, I don't want anybody hurt. I don't want anybody hurt. Not just this is my kid, but I go to church with you or you coach my kid's little league team. Um, so let's, I, I know he's going to be coming here. Let's see if we can fix this. I think there's probably a greater probability for that. As far as the elected officials and the administrations, this is probably not going to be the most diplomatic thing to say ever. However, that's kind of what I'm known for is popping off on stuff like this. I think there is a bigger overall impression that small communities still quote unquote back the blue. Um, it's not a phrase I really super am in love with, but that's the one that you hear a lot. However, I don't see that looking, you know, from outside looking in with the way the police departments, sheriff's offices, um, small agencies are supported financially um, or when it comes to training and equipment and things like that, there's, there tends to be a big attitude of it's hard everywhere, suck it up. And there's some places where that's okay to do, you know, they, you, you don't have to have a matching fleet of cars. Mm -hmm. They don't have to have amazing paint jobs. Um, they can even be ugly, but they should have a cage. They should be safe to drive. Their brakes and tires should work. You should have had EVOC training on a regular basis. Um, and those are the places where sucking it up doesn't always necessarily cut it. Yeah. So you and I have talked about um, housing in some of these areas and how difficult it can be. Have you seen or heard of support from electeds or legislation to support these measures? Maybe get ex exceptions for areas that you maybe wouldn't traditionally build to to build housing for not only public safety, but maybe teachers and, and other uh, important community uh, groups? All the people you need to run your community. Um, yeah. It really depends on where you are. Um, some places like California can be extremely restrictive mm. um, on where and what kind of housing can be built. Um, and that can make it difficult. Um, there are places that are seeking exceptions uh, to building codes um, for certain sorts of housing that would say meet HUD standards, but not necessarily California building codes. I haven't seen anything concrete coming from that right now, but it's been talked about. Um, I have talked uh, to uh, officers in areas where uh, they have implemented successfully housing allowances for some mm. of their hires uh, to make it more attractive or more feasible for them to move into town and live in the communities they're policing. Um, and it, that depends a lot on region. Um, there are a lot of places on the West Coast or in the Intermountain areas where a housing allowance would have to be, honestly, probably almost as much as their salary is wow. to make that feasible. Wow. Um, but there are a lot of places in the Midwest and in the South where a few hundred dollars a month can make a huge difference in affordability for housing. Um, and the benefit to the hiring agency is that kind of a housing allowance doesn't impose a long-term burden for retirement costs mm -hmm. um, and things like that. It's something I would like to see more places look at. Um, there are places that have leveraged um, 
public loans and grants and things like that to build multifamily housing specifically to rent to public employees. Um, and there is uh, legislation proposed called the helper grant. I don't remember what that stands for, but it's modeled on the VA loan program. Mm. And the proposal would be for public employees, for some healthcare employees, for teachers, people like that, uh, making sure that they could get into, well, you can't make sure in a, in a place where, you know, a starter house runs over a million, but opening the possibility that they might be able to get into it, um, housing locally if say the problem is the down payment rather than being able to afford the monthly payment. Mm. Um, because that, that's one of the big attractions of the VA loan, of course, is, is the no down loan, the no down mortgage. So that's out there. Um, it has not been signed into being yet, but it's being proposed. I think it's a worthwhile idea. And at least it's forward progress. People are acknowledging that this is an issue and we need to fix it. You yeah. can only just expect people to be, you know, sleeping in the parking lot of the police department for just so long. They might accept your job. They're probably not going to stay. Right. Wow. Well, I want to get into that, um, especially when we, you know, nationwide, we see officers really thinking twice about working in a large urban environment and thinking more towards lateraling to, to more remote locations. I'll get into that in a minute, but first I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. PoliceOne.com is the number one resource for your up-to-the-minute law enforcement news, training, and incident analysis. Our mission is to provide you with the information you need to better protect your communities and your safety. Becoming a Police One member is quick, easy, and free. Once registered, you will receive access to secure law enforcement-only training and video tips, articles and sections, and a subscription to our award-winning law enforcement newsletters. Go to policeone.com forward slash registration to sign up today. That's policeone, the number one, dot com forward slash registration. And we're back and I'm speaking with Kathleen Diaz and the challenges of policing in small towns and rural areas. And before we get into the, the lateral issue, how much does the weather and geography play on the job and the officers in these remote and, and rural areas? It plays a lot. Um, geography uh, can be superimposing, especially in the mountain areas. Um, you know, if you're in a rural area in the Midwest or in the plains, then distance is your issue. But honestly, it's mostly flat. Um, so you may have severe weather like they do in an urban area as far as floods or tornadoes or hurricanes if you're on the coast. But you get further out west where the terrain starts getting steeper and you start having places, um, say we've lived in a couple of towns now where there was a mountain pass in every single direction. Hmm. So if whatever you needed was not available where you lived, you were going to have to make plans to get over that. So you've got to plan ahead for winter. And now when fire season is absolutely unrelenting, you've got to plan for that too, because we, as, as time went on, we started seeing times when every one of those passes was closed by fires. Wow. And if the pass is closed by fires, it doesn't just mean that you can't get out. It also means the gas truck can't get into the gas station. Mm. It means there's no groceries being delivered. 
Um, if it's during the school year um, and the roads are closed and you have teachers that commute, it means you're going to need substitutes for classrooms. Um, it means uh, you might have roads that are really narrow and turnarounds for your school buses can't get plowed out in time. Mm -hmm. um, and that affects the officers, not just in their work, but their family life. And those things all play into their long-term decisions about whether they're staying there. Um, they have to be able financially to be able to, to prep, to be able to plan ahead, to stockpile gas for a generator, to have extra food ahead, not just for a couple of days, but realistically for weeks. Mm -hmm. um, those sorts of things, um, it, it can be, it, you know, when your road hazard is boulders bigger than your patrol vehicle, um, you know, that's a little bit different than just clearing an accident, especially when there's only two lanes and on the other side of the far lane isn't a shoulder, but a drop off 300 feet down to a river, wow. yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, those are things we take uh, for granted in, in, you know, the urban areas and uh, it makes sense. Uh, and I'm sure those officers are prepared with chains. And I, I saw in a picture in one of your articles, uh, you had a, a vehicle unloaded with it looked like, um, you know, if I was going Everything. on a camping trip for a month, <laughs> I might take what you showed in the back of a radio car. Everything. It's fascinating. Um, it's one of the things I really love to talk to officers about, and they love to show you. A reader sent me that picture and gave me permission to use it. That's his actual work rig. And you ask them, you know, what do you have? And of course, some of it depends on, on location, what they need. Um, but honestly, some of these guys are prepared to stay out for days sure because if they break down and they don't have radio coverage and they don't have cell coverage and it's way too far to walk it might be ages you know i've, I've talked to investigators that are going out to for officer involved shootings at a marijuana grow that is so remote that the entire team who did the raid was long lined in they all have to be long lined back out one at a time and so, you know, the district attorney and, and an investigator might be sitting there in a field that whole time waiting for these guys to get long lined out one at a time so they can interview them. Oh, um, nice. you, need, you need some water and you need some sunscreen and you need a hat and that kind of stuff. But then you get into, uh, we don't just have dog biscuits in the back of our vehicle. I've got sweet feed to get the ponies out of the middle of the road. Um, I have a halter, I have a rope. Some of them have lariats. One guy said he had lassoed pigs <laughs> um, uh, guys that work along rivers and things will very often have a throw rope, um, a ring buoy, things like that. Because by the time you call out, you know, a fast water rescue team, whoever you were looking at has long since been swept down the canyon. You should be able to handle that yourself. So, yep, that goes in there. Wire cutters, things to fix fence. I mean, wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, again, in an urban environment, although we did have an officer have to shoot a tiger once in San Francisco. A tiger. A tiger, yeah, escape from the zoo. So, got you there. Alrighty. <laughs> so, uh, so go, going back to the lateral issue, and, you know, the grass is always greener, right? We're only human, and so somebody working in an urban environment, just sick and tired of the protests, sick and tired of the negative attitude towards uh, public safety these days. Uh, you have a lot of officers looking to get out, looking to go to places like Idaho and Montana and was, where, I almost said Wisconsin, where, wherever you, know, you might think would be better off. Um, 
So a lateral looking to go to one of these remote areas, what should they be looking at first before they leave? For one thing, if, especially if you're changing states, you need to understand the differences in the laws where you're going, not just a matter of, you know, differences in penal code or, or, or traffic violations, but um, things like, um, say, for instance, Wisconsin and California both have quite strong uh, peace officer bill of rights, law enforcement officer bill of rights. Mm -hmm. And there are some workplace protections that an officer in one of those places might be accustomed to and expect as normal. Mm -hmm. And if they move to a place where employment is instead at will and there is no POBR, um, that can be a shock. Mm. Um, they would also need to understand realistically uh, things like what's your promotion path going to look at? Mm. Um, you know, you're working in a larger department. Um, it's usually expected you're not going to stay in patrol forever. Um, and there will be an avenue open when you want to promote and when you're able to promote. Uh, in a department that has, say, fewer than 20 officers, including your chief and your detectives and all of that sort of thing, realistically, what is that path to promotion? Is there one? Are you going to be okay with it if there's not? Um, you need to understand that there's no specialists in rural areas. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen laterals come from really big departments. I'm going to pick on LAPD again for a second, talk to a guy who seriously retired out saying that he had never written a report longer than an FI card. Really? <laughs> he just went call to call his whole career. And it's like, there is no such thing. There's no CSI here. There's no crime scene tax. Um, there's no community service officers. Um, you will learn to lift your own prints. You will process your own scene. You'll take the measurements, you'll take the photographs, and then you're going to do the follow-up investigation and you're going to write all of those reports and then you're going to testify in court. Mm -hmm. And that has to be something that you are willing and able to do. Um, if you specialize, say, if your department uh, is part of an interagency SWAT, that's going to be a collateral duty. That's never going to be a primary assignment. If you have a canine, that is never going to be your only assignment. And if you finally do move into some other thing, you may have to give that canine up because they may not have slots for two. Right. So for officers that are tired with the large city agencies, perhaps considering a lateral transfer to a smaller venue, what are some of the things that officers need to consider before making that leap? They need to be aware of changes between laws uh, and certifications from, especially if they're leaving the state. Um, there are some states with really strong peace officer protections in the workplace. California is one, Wisconsin is another. And there are states that are completely at will employment where those protections don't exist at all. Um, they'll also wanna be aware of differences in things like uh, medical and disability retirements. Probably one of the biggest myths about policing is that some magic system exists to kick into place and take care of an officer when he gets hurt. In some states, even though work comp is always a headache, um, in some states they have a pretty well together system. Other states, every single agency is making it up as they go along. They need to know where they're going. Um, I would also look at things like resources available and make sure your family is completely on board and understands what they're getting into. Uh, work for uh, a trailing spouse may be difficult to come by. Um, the internet might not be fast enough to work remotely if that's the assumption that you're making. Um, Childcare may not even exist for the shifts that you need them. Uh, if you need it for overnights, a lot of cops marry nurses. 
Um, if you need uh, daycare overnights or on weekends uh, in a rural area, there may be no such thing. So if you don't have supportive family in the area, that's going to be an obstacle you need to be prepared for. You need to be aware of before you go. Yeah, those are all great things to consider <clears throat> uh, at the very least. And I'm sure, you know, d depending on which state you go to, um, there might be others to consider. Well, great talking with you. I want to ask you... Um, where can we find out uh, what you're doing, what you're up to, um, read your latest articles? Um, I, I have uh, a page on Police One, and uh, it's called Policing the Remote and Rural. Um, and if you're looking for more information about rural areas and rural policing, I would recommend the Rural Badge Facebook page and blog. It's a great place to participate in the conversation about issues specific to rural policing. That's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and, and being a guest on the show, Kathleen Diaz. And uh, we look for your articles on rural uh, agencies and smaller departments. They sure need uh, to be noticed. I mean, they're 75% of the law agencies in America today. So uh, I, in particular, I, I support what they're doing. And I'm going to look for, for more topics. And I'm going to ask my listeners to chime in and let me know what's happening in their jurisdictions. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for the invitation. For sure. And, and to our listeners, um, take a look at what uh, Kathleen Diaz is writing on the Rural Badge and on Police One. Uh, really good stuff. And if you are an officer from or a deputy from a smaller agency or a rural agency, let me know. What do you want to hear about? Uh, what did we miss on today's um, show uh, that you're dealing with and you need some answers or you just want to let uh, everyone else know. So uh, really different issues than the ones we're talking about in the larger agencies. Um, you're probably getting a lot more support in the smaller uh, communities where you know people by name, you, you make regular stops uh, along the way during your, your patrol hours. So we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at policingmatters at police1.com. That's policingmatters at police1.com. Love to hear from you. You'll get an answer from me or somebody on the team. And uh, you may hear your letter in a future mailbag episode. Hey, thanks for listening and stay safe and be careful out there. And we'll catch you next time. Take good care. <laughs>